0: Hi, Betsy Corcoran here, CEO and co-founder of EdSurge. Riddle me this, what do these three people have in common? Deborah Beale, who's founder and president of the Posse Foundation in New York City, Jim Fruchterman, who's founder and CEO of Benetech in Silicon Valley, and Manu Prakash, who's an inventor and physical biologist at Stanford University. All three of them care really deeply about who's going to study science, engineering, technology, and math, STEM subjects these days. And all three of them are what the MacArthur Foundation has called fellows and what everybody else calls geniuses. And all three of them sat down with me recently to give a new look into the question of how do we get women, people from different backgrounds, low-income, minorities, people from very, very diverse uh, experiences to study science, engineering, technology, and math. And all three of them believe that the reason that we need to do this isn't just to be nice, but because it's fundamental to creating innovation in the U.S. Join us for this conversation here on EdSurge Extras, starting right now. So good evening and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. We'd like to thank the MacArthur Foundation and Benetech for their support in making this evening open and free. My name is Betsy Corcoran. I am CEO and co-founder of EdSurge. EdSurge is a news and information resource on education technology. We ask educators Uh, And we help them answer the core questions around education technology. Why, when, where, how should technology be used to help students? To help all of our students. And that's why I am so pleased to be here with this extraordinary panel tonight. Let me start by giving you a short introduction to who we have. Immediately to uh, my right, we have Jim Fruchterman, who is, the co- who is the founder and the CEO of Benetech. We have Debbie Beal, who is the founder and uh, head of the Posse Foundation from New York City. And we have Manu Prakash, who is a professor at Stanford University. We brought them and you together tonight to talk about STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, education, and how we can attract more people, more diverse thoughts, more diverse people to science, technology, engineering, and math. And why do we do this? Well, we think diversity really matters. So before I come to this panel, which is an extraordinary panel, I'd like to start with a question for you, the audience. You guys are smart folks. So why did you come here tonight. I'm going to guess that you were intrigued by the concept of hearing three people who have been dubbed as geniuses by the MacArthur Foundation. You know, in the past 37 years, there's only been 990 of these folks identified, and you've got three of them right here on stage. That's pretty cool. And exceptional creativity is the first criteria that the Mark Arthur Foundation uses when they accept their awardees. Now, what, what if I told you that we changed it up on you and that actually tonight we have a different panel for you? We're going to have an engineer who is blind. We'll have a child born in the slums of Mumbai. We'll have the daughter of a cab driver from Brooklyn. Would you have come here Tonight. So let's call this second panel our panel of the future. And our hope is that by the time we get to the end of this evening, you're going to see that there's an awful lot more in common that that panel of the future has with the panel here tonight. So let's jump in. I'm going to start with Jim Fruchtemann. Uh, who is, as I said, the CEO and founder of Benetech. Benetech wants to empower communities with software, build software, has changed how people with disabilities can read and learn through a program, partially through a program called Bookshare, has a program called Martis that helps human rights defenders pursue truth and justice, and it's also built an open-source adaptive management tool Uh, called Morandi, that conservationists love to use. And Jim sort of summed it up this way um, in, in a quote that I love. He said, I started from a single enterprise entrepreneur, became a portfolio of enterprise's ringleader, and a guy who wants to help all of Silicon Valley transform the world of disadvantaged communities. And he's got plenty of fancy degrees, too. He's got a uh, degrees from Caltech, but he is also very proud that he has not quite yet completed his PhD at Stanford. <laughs> so, Jim, you started Benetech because you came across a technology that you thought could help people who were vision impaired, but the company you were working for at the time didn't think the market was big enough. And that's kind of the kiss of death for an awful lot of ideas in Silicon Valley. So how did you avoid that kiss of
1: death? Well, I, I presented this product to our board, and uh, they said, how big is the market for reading machines for the blind? And I said, we think it's about a million dollars a year. They said, but we've put $25 million in this company. It <laughs> does not match. And, and so they vetoed the product, and I was really, really disappointed. And I went to my, my lawyer Said so the board vetoed the product to help the blind. I still want to do it. And he says, well, we could we could start a deliberately nonprofit tech company. And I I kind of giggled because I worked for one of the many accidentally nonprofit tech companies here in Silicon Valley. And I thought, wow, you could be like you could be like successful by definition. But but my lawyer volunteered to incorporate us pro bono as a 501c3 nonprofit, a charity. And we were able to go into the business of making reading machines to the blind because we figured even if it was a million-dollar market. If we broke even, it would be sustainable, and that would the nonprofit sector, that would be a giant success instead of an utter and despairing failure that would be considered among VCs in Silicon Valley.
0: But the interesting thing is that even though the numbers sounded small, Mm -hmm. you felt compelled because the impact was huge.
1: Well, I mean, I'm like a typical geek, right? I want to solve important problems, and the money thing, I don't know, it's not bad, but it's not the main thing. And, uh, and it turned out that uh, we underestimated the market uh, within three years of $5 million a year break-even venture. It's the only tech venture I've ever been associated with that beat plan. But our <laughs> expectations were way low because we thought, no, is this really a market? And the market is going to fail to do a lot of the things that we really should do, but don't make the kind of money you have to make to justify it to a venture capitalist.
0: Okay. We'll, we'll come reasons. back to some of these yeah. points. Uh, Debbie Beale is an education strategist. In 1989, she started the Posse Foundation, based in New York. And the Posse Foundation looks for high school students who have strong academic and leadership potential. And it creates a Posse, like 10 students each, helps them learn how to support each other, and then sends them off to some of the best universities in the country. And since 1989, the Posse Foundation has enabled more than uh, around 8,500 students to attend leading universities. And together, they have won $1.2 billion worth of scholarship money. And uh, that's pretty astounding. And uh, Debbie herself has been to some fine schools, undergraduate work at Brandeis, and her MA and doctorate, which she did finish, uh, at uh, Harvard University's graduate school. Um, Debbie, what did you hope to start with the Posse Foundation, and, and what's changed over time?
2: Yeah, the, um, hi. Thanks for coming. The, I just want you to know this is the first time that I've been like this, with other fellows on a panel. It's nice to be with you.
1: First day we met.
2: Yeah? Yeah, Yeah, of course. Um, In the 80s, the word posse was kind of a cool word in the youth culture, right? (laughs) More than it is now, but it met my group of friends. And there was a kid who had dropped out of college, and he said, you know, I never would have dropped out if I had my posse with me. And we thought, that is such a good idea. Why not send a team... A posse of students together to college. And that way, if you grew up in the Bronx and you ended up in Middlebury, Vermont, right, you'd be a little less likely to say, forget it, I'm going home. That was the idea back then, right? And to your, to your point, your question well, today, I am much more motivated by the social justice aspect of posse than I was when I was a kid. Um, I thought these students deserved a chance to go to these great colleges and succeed and not just get scared off or be shocked by the culture. But today, I think it's a national imperative. And I think that if we don't figure out how to deliver on the promises that we made during the civil rights movement, then we failed as a nation, and we are not delivering. And that's what has changed in this organization because we've really anchored ourselves in that. That's fascinating.
0: And we're going to come back to that switch, which is, it's not just for the kids, kids. it's actually for all of us as well. Um, Now, please meet Manu Prakash, who is an inventor, a physical biologist, an assistant professor at Stanford University, and he's got a wonderful description on his Stanford bio. He says, we are a curiosity-driven research group that works in physical biology. And he's got a very pragmatic streak, too. Uh, You might have seen him earlier on with a very, very interesting microscope, a microscope made out of paper, an origami microscope. And I was going to tell you all about the wonderful origami microscope and the fact that you can order a hundred for a school online for very little money. Um, But he's got something even cooler that he's doing now. He's building a centrifuge for 20 cents the world's fastest spinning object with human hand power um, that's based on one of the oldest technologies on the planet, which is a button on a string. Uh, he got his bachelor's degree at the Indian Institute of Technology in Kampur, his PhD from MIT. Manu, how did you ever come to the idea of building a microscope with paper?
3: Uh, <laughs> um. I think if I back off, uh, many of us in this room uh, uh, have always been tool makers. I do remember as a kid, uh, I couldn't afford a microscope. And uh, I don't know how many of you are carrying your own microscope in your pocket. <laughs> uh, and uh, for some reason, I actually took my brother's eyeglasses and thought lenses, if I add them together, I, uh, I built something. But of course, my brother was really mad. It was his only eyeglasses. LAUGHTER um, and the point is, I think eventually it is in all of us uh, to change and modify the world around us. Uh, and very specifically, scientific tools are something that give you a window into the new, something that you have just never experienced before. Uh, when uh, Jim Sobolski, my student, and I—Jim's here tonight—we uh, uh, started talking about this idea of access. You know, what is the biggest set of problems that we care about? Often as engineers, we are taught and uh, told to believe that let's solve problems that, are, that look hard on paper, You know, make the fastest XYZ, and uh, not care about the set of resources. We asked ourselves a question. We're going to build an instrument that 2 billion kids on this planet can actually afford. So something along the side of a pencil of microscopy it's a very different kind of a design challenge. Uh, Both of us were in Thailand one time in the middle of a rainforest and seeing these fancy microscopes that had been put there that don't actually work, both from a context of diagnostics, both from a context of just making people curious. Uh, We came back, and I think I had thought a lot about manufacturing in the print industry, and it struck upon the fact that we could do this with two-dimensional materials and a little bit of robotics. I think the proudest moment for me is, of course, we made the microscope, we wrote a paper. When, as an academic, you publish a paper, you think the world's gonna change. Nothing changes. Just so some of the other academics in the audience. You have to take the next step. And we were fortunate enough that philanthropic uh, organizations supported us and we made a call to anybody in the world of if you want a microscope, we will ship you one. And that really started us on this path where we believe scale is one way that we have to assess this ourselves. At this point, we've shipped around 300,000 foldscopes scopes uh, to 130 countries. And that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't asked ourselves this question that how do we take tools that we make, not just in our hands, but give them to people and say, what will they discover? So primarily driven by that question is what will they discover is really why uh, we ended up in this path.
0: That's fantastic. I wonder if you're starting to see what these three people have in common, other than the MacArthur thing, of course. Have you started to see what they have in common? Well, all three of you are involved in STEM. Deborah, you have a special initiative around creating STEM posses. And Jim, you're an engineer. You're building technology, employing engineers. And Manu, you're running a science lab and teaching students. And we have talked for decades in this country around the problem of diversity. And it is a huge problem. When you Any way you cut it, any way you look at the number of people who are working in science and technology, we see that people coming from different backgrounds, women, minorities, um, are disproportionately left out of the conversation. 70% of the workers in science and technology are white, his the uh, groups that are Hispanic, Black, American Indian make up about eleven percent, but in the population they're more than double that. Uh, women may have uh, fill close to half of all the jobs in the U.S. economy, but they make up twenty nine percent of the science and engineering workforce. So what's the problem? What have we? Why have we been so stuck? on this for so long.
2: Are you looking at me? I sure am. No, I'm looking <laughs> at you. I, have the, I have the answer. Um, I actually think it's not that complicated an answer. Great. But it's not a... It's, um, and it's an upset, upsetting answer. I think that we have not been able to get past the racism that exists, the misogyny that exists, in this society, and I think it holds us back. And this is a consequence. I don't think it's that much more complicated than that. Why do some kids come from privileged backgrounds and others not? And why do we have, you know, a class system that in many ways is divided by race? Why is that? And I I think we need to look at ourselves However upsetting that might sound, maybe that's not the answer that you expected. But we often look at what's wrong with the kids and we try to fix the kids. But there's nothing wrong with the kids. There's really nothing wrong with the kids. Kids are smart everywhere, they have big dreams, they're ambitious, and they want to succeed. You're not going to find a kid that says, you know what, I don't really want to succeed. They want to, but we don't have a society that understands its own flaws, and I think that's our problem. Jim, jump jump in on this.
1: I mean, I think that we have habits, right? Habits that we think these things are true, and or we choose... What's to an use...
0: example of a habit that you're referring to?
1: Oh, you know, that African Americans aren't as good at math as Caucasians. I mean... There are things who, who people that's got not into a the, habit. Well, they, well, but they they, they they believed it, and it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. But and I think that we we then take data and we use it to reinforce it, right? We look at historical data and say this much must be, must be truth. But instead, you go, well, you have no idea the institutional racism that's already in those systems. So if you look at the data, you're just reinforcing the injustice that already exists in that data. And I think the last thing is that actually getting past this. Is something that is not that expensive. It's not that hard. It just requires us to think differently about the potential and the opportunity that is in these different communities. That's and 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 we just have to it's we have to just like get get ourselves out of our rut and just look at this in a slightly different way, and suddenly so you'll see the opportunity rather than and, and maybe habit's not the best word, but but this this sort of you know ingrown racist attitude that is actually not there if you look at people as being full of potential as opposed to, let's say, historically an underclass or treated that way by people of a certain race.
0: Minoo, you've been traveling all over the world, taking your microscopes to different places. Tell us about some of the kids that you have met around the world.
3: Yeah, I think it's very interesting sometimes when I think about these issues, and uh, we just made a small, simple tool... It's actually the microscope that takes us. I don't take the microscopes. They just go, and it's the drive in communities. It's effectively when you ask. I mean, all the communities that you listed. Uh, why is it that you know science sometimes, which is essential for our lives, and similarly, many of these people are essential for science. We would not be making the kinds of breakthroughs we make if we don't include everybody.
0: Give us an example. What's what's something that <laughs> I'll comes give you an
3: example. You know, think about solving problems. If you don't live and breathe a problem, every engineer knows you will never be able to crack it. Uh, eventually, when you ask to live and breathe a problem, and to tackle some of the hardest problems, you know, you can talk about biodiversity loss is exactly matched to many places where there is highest environmental pollution. Uh, you can look at, I'll give you a fun example, which was uh, something that I found quite uh, surprising. Jim and I were in Nigeria, and... uh one of the things that you often think about, this is a very common problem in, uh, in many countries, but Nigeria specifically, of uh, fake currency and fake this and fake that.
0: Not just bitcoins either. Uh,
3: that's correct. Uh, and there was a kid who looked at this uh, in our community. We ship microscopes, tell people whatever they want, and he figured out a way that he could use microscopy as a way to identify currency. And then, you know, you can build a business on that. It's a brand new idea that he's posed by a challenge that he faces every day, and he is exactly the right person. The problem is we think of education as this bundle, and then you're supposed to repurpose it sometimes for a good of a very small group of people. What is most powerful that I find in STEM is it's just a tool that you get to apply to your own community. And every single place that I have traveled, I have met remarkable people. And one of the things is places that I don't even get a chance to travel. You meet because uh, all communities are connected now. They inspire each other. You meet every single time an example that, of course, when you hear a solution, you say, ah, this makes sense. But this was an individual that was living and breathing a problem. And so if we empower those people, we don't just... Empower them and make a just equal society, we actually solve some of our biggest problems
0: it's a great point, and i want to I want to come back to Debbie because what Manu just said is he said, we think of education as a bundle that we're giving to a group of people. It sounds like you went through a transformation in thinking about what was education that your posses were going to encounter. Tell us a little bit about some of the students who've gone through the posses, mm-hmm. and how you made, again, that transition from thinking, oh, we're doing something nice for them, to this is something for all of us.
2: Right, and, and also to connect it to Manu's point, which is if we think outside the box, we, kinda, we, we will discover solutions that we never dreamed of to some of our greatest problems. If we understand that diverse teams, are better teams, if we understand that a kid who's living in the problem might solve it better than a scientist in a lab, oh my gosh, right? What, what? There's, in, there, the possibility is there mm-hmm. for great solutions. So, uh, you know, we have kids that you never would imagine should go to Vanderbilt or Bryn Mawr or Brandeis or, or Dartmouth or Middlebury. Those kids that you think of with the highest SAT scores, right? Who the highest GPAs that you know are competing against each other to get into these schools, we find students who traditionally would be missed on the radar screens of these great colleges. And what do I mean by that? They're kids who maybe don't have the greatest test scores. Maybe they didn't go to a, a highly ranked high school. They're students who represent the diversity of this country. How can you identify a student who's going to succeed at the highest levels at one of the most elite institutions of higher education in the United States if they don't have a great test score? Let me just ask you a question for one second. How many of you took either the ACT or the SAT? Just raise your hand. Okay. Keep your hand up if you remember your score. (laughs) You just had... Okay, of those of you who remember your score, keep your hand up if you're willing to just say what you got right now. <laughs> Gentlemen, right in the middle there.
0: I'm not asking them no, to.
2: But the point is, why are, why are hardly any hands up? You believe that this score is a reflection of something about you, right? Your intelligence, maybe you think it is. Or you there, there's some reason at whatever age you are right now that you don't want to share your test score. <laughs> we put way too much into these tests. And what we do is we reinforce this um, myth that a test equals intelligence or merit. Merit scholarships in the United States go to students with the highest test scores. And white and Asian students are still scoring the best on the SAT, for example. So they're getting the bulk of the merit scholarships. And merit means deserve. Just follow me for a second with this. So how do we get black and Latino kids, for example, into our elite institutions of higher education? We create programs based on a deficit. Programs for poor, at-risk, minority, needy, underserved, underprivileged, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And think about what that does to the psychology of the community on a campus. You've got kids who deserve to be there, and then kids who are there because we are kind and charitable and we've allowed them to be there. That's not a good way to think. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when you want you want to break out of the system. We have to understand that the systems perpetuate the isms.
0: And what you're saying is once again you said it earlier it's not the kids fault. It's the point of view of the people who are looking at them. Jim, jump in here.
1: Yeah. So when I started, when I left my for-profit company and was going to make reading machines for the blind, I thought we're going to get a bunch of volunteer engineers in every city to help blind people get their get their reading machine. I went out and I talked to the people that we were going to work with, and they said, "Well, you know, um, none of the companies that make technology for blind people will hire a blind person to sell their tools of independence." <laughs> and whoa. <laughs> and I said, we have a bunch of people who could sell the hell out of your product. Why don't you give them a chance? I was like, sure, sure. So the majority of my dealers, very quickly, majority of them were people with visual impairments. And a couple of my dealers were blind people with a turn for software. So one of them wrote a better front end for the reading machine than I'd written. And I'm supposed to be a bright engineer type. And because frankly, he knew and he lived the problem and he got it better. And someone else wrote a Currency identifier because American currency is exactly the same size. So I just started I just kind of sat back and let this kind of flow and I think but but I had this idea even though I was going to help blind people that they needed my help and what they really wanted is a tool so they could just go on with their lives and if I could help them make a living along the side by giving them an opportunity to start a business stand back and watch what happens.
0: <laughs> one of uh, the questions so thank you very much for contributing questions, this is hopefully an engaged and interactive forum and if you do have other questions you can fill out the form when women and minorities successfully complete education in STEM subjects sometimes they drop out of the workforce Mm -hmm. what happens? What what do we have to do to change the culture in the workforce so that when they have gone through this path Stay. Manu? Uh, I think
3: there's a slight twist to this question that I like to pose, which is you know, we think of this idea of STEM as a career and STEM as a a new way of, uh, you know, opening new opportunities, which is all correct. But at that same time, science is also a way of living. Science is a way of making sense of your world. The medicine that you're about to give your child or you're about to vaccinate uh, your kids or what you're about to do based on a weather event and where you should actually be living in the future, they're all dependent on your understanding of this world. So science to me, and sometimes... I see these statistics about very focused on career, and especially when I work with kids, giving them tools to empower them to learn how to ask questions. And eventually it boils down, to me, the mark of success in uh, many people that I see that contribute very heavily to the field of science are the people who went through the whole process of SAT scores, I went through that. I mean, I had to pass this Mm -hmm. crazy exam that I don't even remember now. Uh, all across India to make it through, but in the end, I don't remember any of that. The only thing I remember that somebody told me early on, learn how to ask good questions. So how do we turn this dialogue going from STEM careers into a scenario where we're also training the people for the right opportunities? Of course, there is an opportunity if you're carrying a degree from a specific college, but frankly, what's gonna matter most and All of you have the power to hire, and hopefully you're hiring the kind of people who really can crack the problem. And the people who can crack the problem are the people who really understand. They learn how to learn. If we teach people that, you have a scenario where we go into a dialogue where this just becomes a part of their life. And I get troubled by this scenario where many people are told that you're not good enough because you didn't get this and we have X number of people and they don't actually get the opportunity to show their talent. So let's flip this around and have people have access to show their talent and then creativity is really the measure. And this is what's happening already. I mean, in terms of all these digital tools and all the analog tools that are becoming available almost to everybody. But we have not changed, the people, and including, I'm pointing at academics, including myself, I still evaluate admission files from many of your fellows in the same old fashion. How do I change my system to really be able to have the most talented people rise on how they think, not what a piece of paper...
0: And how do we give them the courage to ask questions,
3: how do because we get? I think they're born with it. We just stop styming their growth. Stop they're stym- born can with I,
2: it. Can I add something to yeah, that? We, we have something, it's just because you're saying yeah. this, called the dynamic assessment process. DAP. Awesome. <laughs> this year, 17,000 students across the United States were nominated for a Posse scholarship. 17,000, only 750 won it. But we interviewed those students in a way that you, you'd think were crazy. A room like this, <laughs> Big room, no chairs, though. A hundred students walk in. They've been nominated by someone who believes in them. Someone like you two, right? You know this student. You know she can do it. But maybe she doesn't have the score, or whatever. Whatever the reason. She's smart. She can ask questions that are good. They walk in, and for three hours, we run them through a series of activities. They're building robots out of Legos. They're running a discussion on genetic testing. They're creating a public service announcement that they have to present in front of all the people in the room. And you could volunteer. You're walking around the room. What are you looking for? You're looking for the student who's got leadership potential, who works well in a team, who's got great communication skills, who asks good questions. You doing it for the first time would find the same student that I've, I could find doing it for 29 years, right? Because they stand out. No paper application will show what you can see in a live setting. We're doing this with 56 universities. They're changing the way they understand potential. It's, an SAT
0: might be important, but it's not the only measure. Fabulous. So changing the way, once again, changing the way... We are looking Mm -hmm. at the students. Let me jump into a second question. Leadership changes culture, or it builds resistance to unfortunate changes. What would it take to build (laughs) transformative leaders who can model the changes that our education culture desperately needs? What does it take to build those leaders? Jim, you've seen a lot of leaders. You've seen good and bad.
1: Well, I mean, I I think... I think the number one thing you start with is remove useless barriers, right? Because if you never get the chance to even demonstrate, you never get into that, into that room with anybody else, then you don't have a shot. And I think that we, we certainly see, um, you know, we work in the field of people with disabilities, right? And we just see these barriers that should not be there that stop people from actually having the opportunities that they should have, and then demonstrating what they could have. And yes, occasionally some people are able to surmount these incredible barriers and make it. But you know, but kids from privileged backgrounds don't have to ascend, you know, and leap over you know ten-story buildings to actually get there. So, so certainly, that my my thing is for get the get, get get those barriers out, and you'll have more leaders demonstrating more of that possibility because they've had more opportunity.
0: How do you get the barriers out? How do you do well, that?
1: I mean, I think we, we've talked about changing people's minds, right? So, so one of the things that, that, that we're spending a lot of time doing is, um, you know, we're a charity. We, we have a free library for, for people with disabilities. It's fabulous. But we're spending a whole bunch of time with the educational publishing industry saying, hey, if you remove those barriers, you would make more money, and people would have better educational opportunity. Wow, what what's not the like? And they're like, wait, aren't you the guys who steal our stuff for you know for free? I'm like, well, yeah, but but still, you still should do this because it's it's the right thing, but you'll make more money at it. And I think so many of these things as people are motivated by money. Many of the things we're talking about are actually in the economic interest of the society as a whole, of the university, of the employer, and but people don't think so. So I don't know, that's (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to jump in
3: here in terms of removing barriers in a very same way as you yeah. describe in the digital context. Um, access. You know, we talk about this. We're here uh, in a fabulous setting. And right at this very moment, somewhere in the Amazon is a kid walking by who's probably picked up something that no scientist has ever seen before. <laughs> so sometimes we call barriers. But he has something that no scientist has, a backyard filled with possibilities, but has no tools, no formal training. And you know uh, he looks at a bark and he's scratching this bark and it, out comes Taxol, one of the most powerful drugs in cancer. So we think sometimes of this notion of uh, access, access to tools really changes. But at that same time, you have to remember that the people you're empowering also have something that society and everybody else in general needs. A better understanding of this world to begin with, a better sense of empathy for their own kind when you start realizing that the whole thing is not a rat race, that they're not in there for something. And many of these students, I can guarantee you, when they go back to their communities, are much more dedicated to the fact that you're not just doing this just for yourself and you shine. Most of these people then look back and say, oh, I was lucky, now how do I return that back? So there is this amplification effect in removing access. I think when we talk about this idea of making affordable science tools, I really mean this in a sense that if we have 2 billion kids, Mm -hmm. we really should be talking about everybody. It's not about developed developing countries. It really is about haves and have-nots. And how do we look at solutions that will scale at the planetary scale, because most of these problems are not just problems in the US as well. They are planetary problems, and the hardest hit communities are the communities have the least access, not even just to do something about it, but even to understand the problem. So this barrier that we were talking about, once we do come up with scalable ways, you are in a situation where they are bringing something to the table that we do do not have. Uh, not just in talent, but also in their understanding.
0: So one of the things that struck me when we had a chance to prepare for this panel is that these people look at the world differently, right? They think up, they look at the world differently, and what they're saying is their students are looking at the world differently, and that that is the great gift that they are bringing. But there's... A powerful question here as well, which is that systemic change, systemic across the whole country, is often driven by people in power. And if people who do not look at the world differently, if people who are, not, who are underrepresented don't have a seat at the table of power, can we break down these barriers? Okay, I'm looking you, at you, Deborah. <laughs> yeah, I,
2: I love who wrote that question. Both of these questions are leadership questions. This combination of access and, you know, scaling the idea of access is hugely important. But without leadership, we're lost. And you have, you know, in the United States, for example, you, 90% of the United States Senate is white, and basically 80% are, of our senators are men. These are our representatives. How can they, no matter how well-intentioned, maybe?
3: Maybe. It's
2: radio. (laughs) (laughs) No, but what I'm saying is no matter how well-intentioned people are, it's very difficult to represent as diverse a population as we have if you're not diverse yourself. Leadership, just one small thing. You know, we always celebrate Martin Luther King, and it was just Martin Luther King Day. I don't know how many of us in the United States understand that he, as a leader, was leading a minority. Hardly, there was a very small number of people in the United States that were pro-civil rights movement. Without leadership, without people who are going to fight and speak up and yell and infiltrate and be subversive and be direct and be all of these things, I need to be in the room where it happens. What's the Hamilton li- line? That's the line. Right? You have to have leadership. It is critically important. All that Posse does, if, I don't, if you remember nothing else about Posse... We're never going to be huge and, and do, we're going to be small. <laughs> we're going to get a thousand new students into these institutions every year and graduate them and then ha- like hold them by the hand so they can become senators and CEOs. They can run hospitals and newspapers and whatever else they need to run so they can speak out in conventional and unconventional ways because we need them. I, it is very difficult right now to point to anyone who is a powerful leader. For social justice in the United States, and we desperately need them.
0: It's here for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jim Manu, let's take it down to the micro level. What do you do in your work environments, in your labs, to try to let these voices, to try to support these voices, to try to support these emerging leaders?
1: Well, I, I want to use software and data to hear the voice of all of the members of these communities. I mean, we're talking about large-scale systems change, and yet often we make these policies without regard to that. And I think, I think that if we do a better job of doing that, we're going to end up going in a better direction. And, of course, in Silicon Valley... You know, people talk about human-centered design and, you know, user-centered design. And, you know, the way we do it is we try to put the user in charge and listen to them. Now, that's, that's a recipe for a successful business, but it's also a recipe for a more empowering social sector and the like. And, and I think that, I mean, one, one of the things, you know, we started with Reading Machines for the Blind, we then started the largest library for blind people and, and dyslexic people. And what we did is we said, you're in charge of building the collection. So if d- you scan a book, it gets added. So instead of us deciding what books disabled people should read, disabled people decided what books they wanted to read, and what else? They built the largest library of its kind. Why? Because they want to read everything, like everybody <laughs> And else. that's so Surprise. much like, that's exactly what
0: <laughs> Manu, you have yeah. been talking about in terms of handing out hundreds of thousands of microscopes and other instruments, right?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a beautiful question because uh, sometimes when I talk about full scope and just internally when we think and philosophize uh, where the future is, Uh, I often think of Foldscope as not an object, it's a community. In the end, our biggest role is to pass ownership of where people would like to take a capability. So anytime we engage with any, ironically, if you ever get a Foldscope, There is zero experiments in the instrument when it comes because we want you Mm -hmm. to really open up and say, I have a clean slate, what would I do?
0: So it's not exactly a Lego kit. There are not instructions. Uh,
3: There are instructions to make it, but then (laughs) once you have a window where you would look, just like if you had a telescope, where you would point should be in your own control. This is what we have missed in education. We teach people how to read, but then we point, this is what you should read, which is backwards, backwards. Because in the end, based on the context of that person, so the entire community translates all the instructions, and in the end, this ownership is what create leaders. So Jim and I, and a few of us who make these tools possible, it's actually, I sometimes get overwhelmed, it's like, oh, you know, what are we gonna do? Two billion kids is a lot of kids. (laughs) But the biggest power that I feel is, it's not just my problem to solve, it's everybody's problem to solve, we're playing a role, And I have seen every day around the world, every single day, we hear about somebody around the world running full scope workshops with zero effort from our side, with zero push from our side because they care. So this notion that eventually that these leaders know that they are at the driver's wheel, which is exactly what you said, Jim, is just so powerful. Because, you know, in the end, a lot of technology that comes about, which is a platform tool, and you ask yourself, like, this is what I'm going to apply this to, and this is how the world should use it. I have no idea (laughs) how you should use it. You have the diseases. You have these tools. Let's figure it out, and I'm here to help. And similarly, there are thousands of other mentors here to help. So we got to be out of the driver's seat because otherwise we are going to take this bus to a specific location. Mm -hmm. What we really need is these people to really take them in where they want to go.
0: So it's fantastic because you've all answered another question. The question very precisely was you've created solutions to enhance the existing state of education. How can we use your innovations to reform education? And what I'm hearing you say is give it away because it's people themselves Mm -hmm. who will reform. Fabulous. Do we have an anti-science? No, let me not ask the question (laughs) that way. That's silly, isn't it? How can we overcome the anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-journalist bias (laughs) that we currently have in American society? What are we going to do about this? I mean, I, I think, think you should all take out a subscription. Wait, or something, can, by can,
2: the way. whoever, we have, can you explain that? What, we have an anti-science
0: society. Well,
2: I think that, the is way
1: that, it's certainly a pattern. Yes, yeah. It's,
0: so the question, I I do you, well, so we can ask: Do you feel that we have an anti-science? Do we? culture? Is that everyone saying yes? We have that. Should we I take a hand raise? A, okay. Who says we have I, 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 an yeah. anti-science culture? We are sitting here in Silicon Valley. Uh, Okay, who says we do not have an anti-science culture? Okay, who can't make up their mind? (laughs) 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 I'd say we're kind of
3: divided. uh, Let me cut this question slightly differently. You know, I think uh, in science, one of the goals is to find the truth. We follow the truth wherever it takes us. But in the end... The frontiers of science have moved so far and so far into our imagination, because we love to build on top of each other's imagination. And we left a little bit of a part out which has become a problem, is society's viewpoints, but at that same time, how do we bring everybody to that upfront? And one of the ways that we do that is we share knowledge. Knowledge is this important bit that really makes us as a a race uh, such an important crust of how these frontiers move. But science has a critically and equally important thing of experience. So when you couple knowledge with experience, how many of you have seen your own blood cells? Let me have a raise of hands. Uh, So this is remarkable. This is maybe like 10% (laughs) of you. And... uh, uh, that's awesome, because I would rarely <laughs> get that. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, those little blood cells make you work. Every little one of these details. and But that's experience. You could watch a picture of a blood cell and say, ah, you know, I get it. No, you don't. When you really are bleeding and you decided to take that moment <laughs> and look through, what am I made of? That is what I mean by experience. I mean, when we were playing with full scope and some of you gasped by what kale looks like, that's the moment. And I think this notion of we call anti-science is in some sense, are we truly sharing the experience of science with everybody so that we can have a true conversation? Sometimes that conversation is missed out, and then fake journalism and people who have another agenda can take over because it's their knowledge versus another knowledge. I'll give you another example. When I am out in the field, my hardest problem in healthcare work, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, is how do I make somebody believe in medicine? I mean, I say there are germs on your hands. They've never seen one. It's as good as this voodoo's explanation who said that, oh, there is some spiritual power here, and we know germ theory is right because we have experience. So we have to be careful about this notion of not just isolating and giving this perfect answer because it might isolate these communities to begin with. Really, let's have a rational conversation with the important bit that in science, as scientists, as all of us who you, if you call yourself a scientist, it is your job to communicate this experience Mm -hmm. of science to every single person you meet. It is not written in your job description, but please remember, we will not exist if that was not in your job description.
2: I just want to say, I don't think, I think global warming, for example, Mm -hmm. The majority of scientists vast, 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 vast we almost all scientists accept I it. Yeah. Okay. I, I I wonder that we have an anti-science. I think we have irresponsible reporting. <laughs> I think the media is not always doing the job it's supposed to do. Yeah. There's good yeah. media, there's bad. But there's there's so much now, and social media is so prevalent. I think there's a danger. I, I hear 17 year old students saying
0: we don't trust the media. That's incredibly
3: dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> dangerous.
0: Um, I would love to have a long conversation <laughs> about, about trusting <laughs> the media, but, but that might get us a little off topic here. Yeah. So I, I'm going to go back to uh, two other questions that came up, and uh, I hope the questioners will forgive me for, for combining them because there's an element of similarity. But I'll tell you both of them. One says, I am a person of color. Uh, what advice do you have for people of color we're educators. What's the best way to be a change agent for education? And the second person said, how do we get students with learning disabilities past the merit-based testing reward as members of a disadvantaged community so that they have an opportunity to be recognized? So I think we're hearing questions from people in these communities saying, how shall we lead? How do we get recognized? What...
1: I'll take the LD question if you take uh, Okay.
0: okay.
2: Go ahead. Um, We have to talk about it. We have to just talk. If you're an educator and you are in charge of a classroom and you work with students, I bet you do this anyway. I don't know who asked the question, but we have to talk openly. And the more we talk, the less afraid we'll be to make mistakes because we're going to make mistakes. We have to not be afraid to condemn what we believe in our heart crosses that line and is wrong and yet we also have to be open to all types of opinions and views it's really hard and i think for you know there's this i think no matter who you are if you're a person of color or or not you have to feel like it's your responsibility to allow students the space to talk and that space has to be safe and it has to be the kind of space where they can come to you with questions. So at Posse, that's what we do all the time. We're running a retreat this year called Hate, Hope, and Race in America. And when you hear those words, hate and hope, I imagine it brings up a lot of images and ideas in your own head. So we're getting 6,000 students in college to talk about that. We're bringing faculty to that too. But just the more you talk about it, the easier it is to find solutions. Maybe that feels like... I'm sorry if it feels like too vague an answer, but I can't stress enough how important that is.
1: Well, I I think one of the big issues that we're talking about is people don't want to be defined by one characteristic, and I think that so many people with disabilities don't want to be the blind person or the dyslexic person, if that comes out. And our society gives you every reason in the world to deny or or, or not talk about an invisible disability like that. And I think what the shift of appreciation is, is, is happening where people are beginning to realize that many of the things that, let's say, people with learning disabilities who make them not good at reading... You know, Many of those traits were darn adaptive at an earlier point in human society, and many of those things actually work in people's favor. I mean, Richard Branson of Virgin is probably pretty darn happy that he's maladaptive when it comes to reading because it certainly has otherwise worked out for him pretty well. And so a lot of what we have to do is, is stop thinking that these are people who are broken and need to be fixed, and that defines them, but instead say, can we get them the tools or the accommodations or or measure creativity and productivity in a different way other than taking the SAT? Without my spectacles, I would be blind, and no one talks to me like I'm a blind person because I have a tool that stops me from being blind. I think think it's the same thing that we as toolmakers just have to say, just make those differences a characteristic, like having brown hair, or a ear piercing, as opposed to this life-defining characteristic where people just put you in a box and say, you can't do X because you have this one characteristic, which should not define your life. Yeah.
0: Manu, mm-hmm. what do you hear from your students? Uh, I mean,
3: I think uh, one of the challenges uh, that we often face is uh, uh, this idea of, coming from their point of view and growing up, sometimes you meet somebody who's already been exposed to many of these. They've been put in the box for a long while. And although, of course, we have to reinvent ourselves as society, but then we also have to tackle what do we do at this moment. And one of the things that I at least find is, uh, you know, there are moments in which the way we define success uh, for many individuals and the fact that Essentially, there is this cascade laid out in our academic system of, you know, this is a college that you got to go. This is what you have to do. We miss out the opportunity of letting them know that the purpose of this is to really find yourself in the end. And we really have to build tools to provide to the people who've been put in this box many times. And, you know, I'm, uh, you mentioned the context of race and uh uh, the context of uh, blindness, uh, I see this many in times in terms of just remote communities where you know, they've been living a lifestyle forever in this way and now a dramatic change is coming and you have this option of either figuring out how to get out of that situation or you have the chance of tackling that situation right there. And most of the time, the amount that we have done in beating the same mantra to them has been way over the top. So we need to figure out ways of solutions in which we will be able to prepare the people, although this is what they have faced so far, there is a next future in which they are part of the solution. And that's starting to happen with democratization of tools. At least for science, very strongly, there is a movement of democratization of scientific tools democratization of some of the knowledge already happened so they need to believe in this fact that this trend will continue and eventually they should see themselves as problem solvers but we are in a very tough situation here because many times if i'm out there i'm working with somebody essentially at the back of their head they're really thinking about okay i mean all this is good but what is my next career move and that really shatters the whole thing because you know then they're really looking for that one step which is what you know we've propagated along the way is like which college should i be going to
0: right i think that uh, we could ask questions all night long but unfortunately we're getting near the end of our program we've heard so much about looking at the world differently about asking fierce questions about asking a lot of questions and about us changing our point of view and us changing our way that we look at people what i'd like to ask each of you now, is to give us some advice. Give us some advice. When we walk out that door or turn off the radio, how can we look at the world differently? How can we do something differently that will make a difference, bring more people into the world of science and technology so that they will be finding and inventing and asking all of the questions about the future? What's something different that we can do? Lead on.
2: Um, I tell this story a lot. I'm going to tell it to you. And I think this goes back to the person who asked, what can I do as an educator? But it's all of us. About a year and a half ago, I was in a room at Deloitte with the CEO of the company, Kathy Engelbert. She's a woman CEO of a Fortune 500 company. There are hardly any of those. And she was talking to 50 Posse alumni. And one woman raised her hand and she said, you're a woman and you're a CEO. How did you get to be there? And Kathy said, I'm going to tell you you need to remember three things. First, you have to work really hard. And I thought, okay, that's not that interesting. She said, second, you have to find a mentor, someone who could really guide you and be your mentor. And I thought, okay, that's good. But then she said the third thing, there has to be someone who will pound the table for you. And let me tell you what I mean by that, she said. I worked really hard, and I had mentors at Deloitte, and I was really doing well. But there was this one person at Deloitte, he was an executive, and when he was in the room where the decisions were being made and he was sitting at the table and the door was closed, he would pound the table and he'd say, have you thought about Kathy? Have you considered Kathy? Kathy is great. Kathy is awesome. Kathy, 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 Kathy. Kathy. And little by little, he made his point, and Kathy rose in the ranks, and she attributes a great part of her success to someone who pounded the table. And everybody in this room can pound the table. You can pound it for one person, and you will make a difference. That's what we can do. Wow. Excellent.
1: Jim, Anu? So, you know, I we're talking about STEM education, and as a technologist, I'm excited that we can shift a t- sort of education from one-size-fits-all, where kids have to adapt to education as we present it, to where they get to actually learn the things that they really want to do. And we've, we're, we're still at the early stages of doing this. People talk about it a lot. And the thing that I talk to designers about and companies about is... Your customer, your user, is not you. We know this in Silicon Valley because of the demographics. But but if we really take it seriously, we should think really broadly about who our customer and user is. And, and in my field, that's called universal design. We should be designing for everyone, senior citizens and people who don't speak English as a first language and everything else. If you do that, you will make more money and you're going to give more opportunity to all those folks. And so it's... But it takes a mind shift because as an engineer, I'm often building for myself. And it's a big shift to think about a product that maybe wasn't what I would get, but would actually help, you know, 100 times more people. And I think that's the shift, the mind shift that has to go on in many of the companies and the publishers that publish educational materials to just give that much bigger range of opportunities and people can find the real kind of opportunity that is going to make them successful on their own terms.
3: Um, yeah, just to add to this, I think we have to realize this, uh, uh, in the whole conversation, I don't think we said this, this is probably the most, uh, I mean, from my point of view, the most exciting time to do science, just the world ex- exploded. I mean, A, we have probably the hardest problems, uh, ahead of us, you know, Climate change, biodiversity loss, uh, the lack of resources. We just don't... This is not an infinitely abundant planet. Just we should be frank about this. And so it's in your benefit to bring science to people. Uh, But at that same time, uh, in that abundance of problems and talent, we have this huge problem of access. And often enough, when you're thinking about this, you're thinking about yourself as how I can... uh, Uh, apply the democratization of tools that have now become available to the problems you care about. Jim and I, when we think about this problem, we can make as many microscopes possibly, just even more than the number of kids on this planet. I know we can solve that problem. I cannot manufacture mentors. There is no formula for manufacturing mentors. If somebody hadn't held my hand and said that, oh, you broke your brother's glasses, it's okay, keep going, I wouldn't have been here. (laughs) And All of us have the capacity to bring true experience of science to people. Not just say, hey, you should be doing STEM, or hey, I bought this book for you, go read it. No, show them the aha moment. Do that every day. Science is such a magnet once you understand what a true aha moment is, is really lead somebody through their own question. And if we can do that at Mentors, you become an amplifier. You It's an amplification effect, and this is what we have seen in the smallest little effort that we have made in our community, is that this amplification has been ringing around the world like a resonator, and all around the world, this keeps going round and round and round, and those mentors that had helped somebody are now helping somebody who's now helping somebody. So just make sure that you bring honest aha moments and try to be a mentor, and it'll make a huge difference to your own understanding of science. So... It goes both ways and if i was not a mentor i would not have been a scientist
0: i think we've heard a wonderful collection of ideas and things that we can all do look at the world differently pound the table for someone bring the joy of science of asking questions to other people and think broadly about who the people are, because the solutions are going to come from everybody else. And the next time you have an opportunity to come to a panel with an unusual group of people, (laughs) whether they're uh, geniuses, whether they're cab drivers, whether they're people from remote places, whether we think we'd put a label on them, come and open your eyes because that's what creativity is all about. I hope you have enjoyed this evening's panel, brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Deborah Beale, founder and president of the Posse Foundation. Uh, Jim Fruchterman, founder and CEO of Benetech. Manu Prakash, physical biologist at Stanford University. I'd like to thank all of you for coming here tonight and all of you who have joined us on the radio. My name is Betsy Corcoran of EdSurge. Thank you very much. This meeting is adjourned.